So we are week two of our sermon series looking at the Gospel of Mark. Gospels are eyewitness historical accounts of the life of Jesus. It's a good encouraging reminder for us that Christianity is the only religion in the world based on historical truth claims. We pointed out last week that Mark, as the shortest gospel, um, is the most action-packed. He gives no explanation of Jesus' birth, genealogy, family. He just comes right out in verse 1. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And last week, our whole entire focus was how important it is for us to know that Christianity is good news. Gospel literally means declaration of good news. Christianity is not advice. Every religion in the world says, here's what you must do, and hopefully if you do well enough, things will turn out well in some salvific sense in the end. Christianity alone says, here's what God has done, and that declaration of love, grace, and mercy invites our heart to respond. And so last week, Mark comes right out and says, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who came. And then he starts telling the story of John the Baptist, the messenger that God promised would come to prepare the way of the Lord. And John the Baptist's ministry in preparing the people for Jesus' arrival was calling them to repent of their sins and receive a baptism of repentance. And so in other words, you need to make sure you understand that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And as a sinner in need of a Savior, there's nothing you can do to save yourself, which is why the good news is that the Messiah is coming. And so in a sense, the good news was we really need a pardon for our sins, and that pardon is available in Jesus. But today we're going a step further. And today our main focus and point is is that pardon is not enough, that the gospel is so much bigger than just simply the declaration that our sins can be forgiven The gospel goes so far as to say not only are our sins forgiven, but because of Jesus, we become fully clothed in the righteousness of Christ. What does that mean? It means that we are adopted into his family and loved by the Father with the same affection that he places on Jesus. Now, we don't believe that. I grew up in a context where I clearly heard but definitely believed Christianity was if you believe in Jesus, your sins can be forgiven, you can go to heaven. But throughout your life, God's just going to be mad at you because of what a train wreck and a failure you are in trying to obey his commands. There was very little concept of favor and affection resting on us. And so I really grew up not hearing um, what the Bible presents as the full picture of the good news The picture I was presented with was Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And if that's all he did, it would still be the best news in human history. But Jesus didn't simply come down to earth and die on the cross and go back to heaven. He actually was born of a woman made like us in every way, submitting himself to the law of God and then lived a life of perfect obedience so that he can give us his righteous record. And this truth changes everything. And our passage today highlights that reality. Our passage today tells us that Jesus shows up to be baptized by John. He doesn't just come out into the wilderness to observe and give points and tips and saying you're doing a good job, maybe a little bit less law and more grace, maybe have a more efficient system for baptizing people. He shows up to be baptized by by John for a baptism of repentance for sins. Now, immediately, this should make us scratch our head and say, why did Jesus do this? Because he was the sinless son of God. He had no sin to repent of. 
And in Matthew's account, he gives us a little bit further explanation where even John the Baptist is scratching his head saying he doesn't understand. And so it says Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And John the baptizer would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, but you come to me. And then Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that's the key, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John the Baptist consented. So what this means is that Jesus was making it clear, I'm going to obey God's law in every way that you failed. So that when you place your faith in me, you don't simply have your sins removed, but you have my perfect righteousness given to you. This is what theologians often refer to as the great exchange. And Paul says it so succinctly in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. This verse, when Tim Keller was asked, if you could only pick one verse in the whole Bible to summarize the good news, what would it be? And he didn't say John 3.16. That's great too. It's not really a ranking system. He said this, this verse. For our sake, God the Father made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see what he's saying? He doesn't say, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might have our sins forgiven. But we might become the righteousness of God, which means his perfect record is given to us, that we are literally clothed, in the righteousness of Christ. The way Paul describes this in Ephesians 1, he says that throughout eternity past, God's plan of redemption always included choosing ahead of time, predestining those that were gonna be saved in Christ so that we could be adopted, holy and blameless children of God. Not chosen in Christ so that we could be forgiven only, but so that we could be adopted into his family. Listen to me, please. This good news is what our hearts are longing for more than anything else. This good news that we have a father in heaven who because of our relationship with Christ can look at us right now and he can say, David, you're my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Misty, you're my daughter, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. You belong to me. I know every single thing about you I've not only paid for it, but I've completely clothed you in my righteousness. God isn't confused. He's not unaware of all the sins, the dirtiness, the things that that if we knew everything about one another, the, the, the thoughts that take place in the inner recesses of our hearts would be horrified to ever show our face in public again. In Colossians 2, it says that Jesus took the legal record of debt that stood against us And he publicly nailed it to the cross, disarming the rulers and authorities. In a few minutes, we're going to respond with arguably my favorite hymn. And I know I have lots of favorites. Don't dismiss that. (laughs) Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. And it says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of my guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. In Colossians, Paul is so clear. Paul, who was a murderer and a persecutor of the church, he says, Jesus knows every single thing about me. 
And he makes it clear to the principalities and powers in the heavenly realms and to everyone in the world. I know him fully and love him completely. Friends, if you are in Christ, that is true of you. Regardless of how you walked in here today, regardless of all the inner voices of criticism that that right now are saying, maybe that's true of someone else. But if you knew how angry and selfish and controlling and afraid and greedy and critical and blah, 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 whatever else I am, you would never say that's true of me. Your sin is no match for the love of God. Our call to worship said that. There's nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Two different ladies talked to me after the first service, and they said, you know, it is so easy for me to truly believe legitimately with all of my heart that that's true for other people, but I can't believe that it's really true for me, that he really feels that way about me. Often we talk about, we don't want to use too like churchy terms that are confusing. And, and so righteousness can be one of those terms that you can be like, what, what does that mean? In the simplest sense, it just means to be right before God. And so we need to be educated in theological terms. We don't need to use terms that make it hard to kind of grasp and get what we're trying to communicate. When he says in 2 Corinthians 5 that God made him sin who knew no sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him, what he's saying is is that so we can be back um, restored and adopted in the relationship that we were created to enjoy. And so I put this quote on the front of your bulletin because this is one of the best quotes I've ever read that gets at this. And I know I've used it a lot. I joked in the first service, I haven't yet read one of Keller's books where he rephrases this in a better way. Maybe I will or someone else. Until then, I'm going to keep using this. This is from Donald Miller's book, Searching for God Knows What. He says, humans are constantly and in every way comparing themselves to one another, which given the brief nature of their existence seems an oddity and for that matter a waste. Nevertheless, this is the driving influence behind every human social development their emotional health and sense of joy, and sadly, their greatest tragedies. It is as though something that helped them function and live well has gone missing, and they are pining for that missing thing and all sorts of odd methods, none of which are working. The greater tragedy is that very few people understand they have the disease. This seems strange as well because it is obvious. To be sure, it is killing them and yet sustaining their social and economic systems. They are an entirely beautiful people with a terrible problem. Now, hopefully that's understandable. That's pretty common language. What is he articulating? Something that helped us function and live well has gone missing, and the answer is our original righteousness. If you read Genesis 1, when God our Father who created everything by the word of his power, created us in his image. And then he spoke a declaration over our first parents, Adam and Eve, you are very good. It says that they lived naked with no shame. Like like we can't even imagine what it was like for them to have hearts that were that secure, that, that relaxed and restful. And then the moment that Satan shows up and begins to lie and tell them that actually you could be like God. You don't need to live in dependence upon his declaration over you. They rebelled, and what happened? 
immediately their lives were covered with what we experience every day. Insecurity, fear, broken relationships. It is as though something that helped them function and live well has gone missing. And they're pining for it in all sorts of odd methods. And that's exactly what happened when God showed up in the garden and began interacting with them. And what happened? Well, it was her fault. No, it was his fault. And they're pining in every little way for God to say to them, it's okay. You can be righteous again. And we're all doing it all the time. This is what Miller goes on to say. God wired us so that he told us who we were. And outside of that relationship, the relationship that said you're loved, valuable, and beautiful, we didn't have any worth at all. This is one of the reasons why we say each and every week, oh, we need so desperately to gather for worship, to have our worth shaped by the love of God. Because every single day we're waking up and we're chasing after lovers less wild than Jesus. We're, we're living in a, in a world, in a culture that is constantly saying, this is the thing that will satisfy your heart. And every time it overpromises and underdelivers. It's so amazing that when God shows up, he, he poses the question. And remember, God never asks questions because he doesn't know the answer. He asks questions because we don't know the answer. And when he says, hey, where are you? And Adam says, well, I heard the sound of you and I realized I was naked, so I became afraid, therefore I hid. God says, who told you that? Genesis 3, verse 11, who told you that? Translation, what is God saying is, whose voice are you listening to? Previously, when you listened to my voice, naked and no shame, you experienced shalom, flourishing in every area of life. Whose voice now are you listening to and what's the result? Now, the answer clearly is we're listening to the voice of Satan. We're listening to our own inner voice of criticism. And only and inevitably it leads to a place of hiding in fear. Roger Edwards at the Barnabas Center said, with those three words that Adam responded to God, naked, afraid, and hiding, he described all human behavior since the fall. We're all doing it all the time. Even as Miller said, it's sad because we all have the disease, but what's sadder is that we don't know we have it. It's sustaining our economic systems and our way of living. We're all running around desperately trying to find a righteousness that can tell us we're okay. And the gospel says that is available in Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that you're not simply forgiven for your sins, but you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When you are in Christ, you are not simply a forgiven sinner, but an adopted saint. You're not simply a pardoned orphan, but you are a now and forevermore fully adopted child of God. And nothing, nothing in heaven and on earth can change that fact. Marcus Aurelius, Roman emperor from 161 to 180 AD, in his book, Meditations, it wasn't really a book he wrote. This was like his personal journal. He says this, and remember what Miller said, God wired us so that he told us who we are. We are created for someone outside of us to tell us who we are. So Marcus Aurelius, Stoic philosopher, Roman emperor, arguably the most powerful man in the known world, reflecting and musing on, you know, the inner workings of man's heart, says this. I have often wondered how it is that every man loves himself more than all the rest of men, but yet sets less value on his own opinion of himself than on the opinion of others. 
know, we can relate. I could finish this sermon and have 25 people in a row tell me, awesome, great, 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 breakthrough, breakthrough, I converted, awesome, awesome. And then one person say, well, you didn't really deal with this enough. <laughs> and I would go home feeling like a failure, right? We get it. You can have 10 encouragements and affirmations and that one criticism can just wound you. You may have grown up being told this awful lie, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And you're like, that is just absolutely not true. Words have power. Marcus Aurelius is like, how is it that I can love myself more than anyone else, have all the power and authority, have the loudest voice in the world that really matters, but other people's opinions of me is what really shapes and affects my life. It's a good bit of self-awareness that he articulated there. And since everybody's all fired up about the Roman Empire, I guess right now, maybe more people will start reading that and God will use it to drive them to Jesus. One of the questions I'll throw out is, are you aware of whose voice is the loudest in your life? Without a doubt, your earthly father's voice, even if he was absent, was very loud. If he was a great, encouraging, kind, and loving dad, like that's an unbelievable gift that should point you to the heart of your heavenly father. If he was distant, harsh, critical, your sadness, your wounds, your hurt simply points to the reality that that's not the way things are supposed to be, that you're created to live and move and have your being with a heavenly father that says, I know you completely and love you perfectly. Are you aware? Are you aware of whose voice carries the most weight in your life? And you may be saying, you know, sadly, Matt, the voice who carries the most weight and the voice that criticizes me the most is my own voice. Well, guess what? God knows that. Listen to this good news. First John chapter 3. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. This is one of the reasons why we talk about the fact that the Christian life, that the journey of sanctification is a community project. It takes a village. It takes a community. One of the most important aspects of the Christian life is for us to confess and share what's going on in our heart so that other people can remind us what's true. And, and so I'll even do this with some of my friends. When I'm in a bad place, I'll call them, and they're like, what's up? Clemson's struggling. I'm like, I don't care. I'm, I'm not doing well. And I'll use that phrase, I need you to remind me what's true. Because I'm struggling to remind and believe it myself. When our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. The final thing I want to point out about this passage that I love is it says immediately after Jesus' baptism, this voice of declaration comes upon him. This is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And then he's driven into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, Mark doesn't give us a ton of explanation about those temptations. The other gospel writers do. But the thing I love most is that it doesn't say that Jesus was going to begin his public ministry. He went out into the wilderness he, he was tempted by Satan the same way Adam was by Satan, the same way Israel was in the wilderness, and he conquered because he's the second Adam and the true Israel, which that's true. And then it doesn't say, and after he, you know, powerfully withstood Satan, then the father said, good job. I'm proud of you. You've earned my affection. That's how we think of approval and affection, right? It has to come based on something I've done. But instead, the father is saying, this is what's true of you. Know it, remember it, believe it as you go out into the wilderness. 
Friends, the Bible is so clear. We live in a wilderness wasteland. The world that we live in is broken and affected in so many ways by sin. And Satan, who cannot in any way steal our salvation and take us out of the Father's hand, constantly seeks to lie to us. Every single day, he he seeks to tempt us to despair and tell us of our guilt within. We need so desperately to remind one another, pray and ask God by his kind spirit, remind us that I'm your son, I'm your daughter whom you love, with whom you are well pleased. Please help me to remember that. That this is the battle of the Christian life to fight to believe that this is true. In Ephesians 6, Paul says this, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces that are at work in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you can withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. If you're familiar with the New Testament, that's a phrase Paul uses often. In in Romans 5, he says, because we have peace with God by faith, we can now stand securely in the grace. Grace is another word for favor. We can stand securely in the favor that we've received. And that is the battle and the challenge every day as Satan seeks to try to, to rob us of our joy that we have in Christ. Remember, Paul told the church in Romans 8, you haven't been given a spirit of slavery that falls back into fear, but rather a spirit of what? Of adoption that cries out, Abba, Father. And when we remember and believe that, even though our lives may look like a mess, everything in our culture may be telling us all the things we need to do differently to to think that we have value and worth. If we believe that truth, we really can have relaxed hearts. As I was thinking about it this week, and not just like my desire to live differently, to have a more relaxed heart, my my longing and desire for this to be true of my family, we were at community group on Tuesday night, and I was paying attention to one of the kind gifts that God has given me and my friend Jennifer Keeley. And I said, you know, I, I could tell so many stories about wanting my dad's approval and affection and his voice being so loud and the fact that this is even referencing father, I think it can be easy in these contexts um, to feel like we miss a woman's voice. So I called Jennifer and I said, I feel like you live with such a beautifully relaxed heart. Would you come share like how this good news affects you on a regular basis? And thankfully, courageously, she agreed to do it. So she's going to come up now and share a little bit of what this looks like for her. So Jennifer, if you'll come on up. Good morning. Um, Thank you for the privilege to share what's on my heart with y'all this morning. I love this church so much, so it truly is a gift. Um, My husband David and I are thankful for this safe place to process our stories along with our three children. Matt called me this week to ask about sharing today. As we spoke, he gave me the compliment that he notices a relaxed heart posture in me. This was a compliment I didn't feel I deserved. My first reaction was to say, oh, no, no, I have misled you. You don't understand. You see me at community group, and community group is life-giving for me. And you just don't know my day-to-day. This summer, my marriage felt strained. 
I worried about different struggles with our kids. I was weighed down by taking on more responsibility at work I didn't feel qualified for. My friendships haven't been tended to. I often feel pulled in many directions and just exhausted. I would not define my heart as relaxed. You just caught me on a good week. But even so, I felt God nudging me that he had something he wanted me to say. I said I would do it, and naturally, my next move was to stop and get my eyebrows threaded. (laughs) Because if I'm going to speak in front of a large group, I can't have unruly eyebrows, right? Sorry to the guys if you don't know what that is. (laughs) It's coiling two threads together to then uncoil to pull out any unwanted hairs. Ouch. Perhaps a metaphor for how my summer felt. While getting this done, a car alarm went off in the parking lot, and I felt convinced it was my car, which it was not. Alongside the alarm that my tense body was taking responsibility for, I was thinking about everything that I needed to do that day, as well as what each person in my family needed to do that day. I was even so distracted, I almost left without paying. What a mess I am, I thought. I've got to tell Matt it's not a good time. I'm not in the right headspace. I kept thinking about that car alarm and how myself, and I think a lot of us, feel responsible for so much. We take on burdens that aren't ours to carry, allowing these heavy loads to be the loudest voice in our heads. And yet, in God's mysterious ways, it's often in this place I am reminded that of course I fall short. My imperfections, my weaknesses, are what lead me to the cross and my need for a savior. Like we read earlier, why am I trying to be perfect when perfection belongs to God? I will never get the satisfaction I'm looking for in measuring how tidy and buttoned up my life is. The God of the Most High loves me just as I am. He delights in me, and that is enough. When my life is disordered, I am closer to the kingdom of God than when it's swept clean by my own strength. His power is made perfect in my weakness. His voice becomes the loudest. I recently listened to a Tim Keller sermon that a dear friend sent me on the power to change. He spoke about how there are many sources outside of ourselves that will motivate us to change. And we can even bring about positive change without Jesus. But he is the only one who can break through strongholds that is lasting and not superficial. I wanted to share a story about a close friend. Several years ago, she and her husband built a beautiful dream home at a time when my inner critic was frequently the loudest voice. I'll never forget walking into their newly finished home for the first time, and I was overcome with jealousy, an intense jealousy I had never experienced before. I felt sick, and all I could think about was wanting to leave. This home is perfect, I thought. How is it already so warm and welcoming, thoughtfully decorated? The pantry is even organized. And here, I can't even stay caught up on dishes and laundry. I went home sad at what I didn't have and with the fear that our friendship would change, that we wouldn't be able to relate to each other. 
I saw very clearly how destructive my sin of comparison was, and I remember realizing, wait, no, it will be my sin and my pride that destroys our relationship, not our different income brackets or lifestyles or homes. I asked for forgiveness, and by the grace of God, my jealousy for her was gone. I asked my friend for forgiveness, and we cried together and had a new understanding of each other. I am so thankful God showed me so much kindness here because my friend is a gift I don't deserve. In the moments where my inner critic, my inner voice is asking me, why isn't your house so warm and welcoming? Why aren't you good enough when others seem to be? I so desperately needed the voice of my father spoken over me. The good news that God the Father looks at me right now in all my mess in the ugliness of things that no one else sees. He declares, you are my daughter, who I love. With you, I am well pleased. I don't just want to believe in Jesus and follow his ways. I want to be overtaken by his love and affection, putting off my old self and putting on the new. Rejoicing in who I am in Jesus, which is not dependent on what I have or haven't done or gotten right or how much of a mess or really just human I am. I can be honest about my shortcomings, free of having it all together. Like the woman in the Bible who touched Jesus' garments and was healed. Mark chapter 5 says, when he asked who touched me, she came in fear and trembling and fell down before Jesus and told him her whole truth. He called her daughter, said, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. In the presence of Jesus, she was fully known and fully loved just as we are. I love the way Paul David Tripp says in his devotional, and I think describes this woman's heart. Rest is not found in figuring your life out or in the quest to understand it all, but in trusting the one who has it all figured out and understands it all for our good and for his glory. First Peter chapter 1 tells us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are born again to a living hope to inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And now that gives me rest. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we, we need your spirit to come and do for us what we struggle so mightily and really can't do for ourselves, which is to believe that your love and affection, that your declaration that we belong to you, that you know us, that you love us, that you're pleased with us, is true. I pray that, I pray it'll be true for our children. Forgive me for all the ways my harshness makes it hard for my girls to believe they have a good father who loves them and is pleased with them. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are our good shepherd who entered into the waters of baptism as Isaiah prophesied that God would lay our iniquity upon you so that we can receive your shalom. I pray that your Holy Spirit will help us to be a people characterized by standing secure in your grace. Thank you for Jennifer, for the tender heart that you've given her, for the work of your grace and mercy in pursuing her. 
Protect her from the lies and schemes of Satan coming out of sharing today and use her story to draw more of your daughters and your sons to yourself. And we ask it in Christ's name, amen.